We have been looking at authentic Christianity as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 12. This chapter, which really begins the practical section of the book of Romans, started with a discussion of our need for transformation, metamorphosis. We are not, in the words of the opening verses of chapter 12, to be conformed to this world, but we are instead to be transformed, metamorphosized, by the renewing of our minds. You know, the world has its ways and its wiles and its methods for doing things, and we are not to allow ourselves to be pressed into the world's mold. We're not to think like the world, react like the world, love what the world loves. A Christian is a new creature, a transformed creature. Mel was showing about his brother today, it's not just that he made some decision, his life was transformed, even at 73 years of age. Transformed, he was a different person altogether by the power of God. We are to think as Christians and conduct ourselves as differently from the world as the way a butterfly looks compared to a caterpillar. I mean, that's a metamorphosis. That little weird-looking wormy thing turns into this beautiful creature. That's really what's supposed to happen. Hard to believe that one was ever the other. Well, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 12, Paul lists a series of descriptive admonitions regarding the Christian life. An authentic, authentic disciple of Jesus Christ should look like this, he says. It's a description of what should be. It's a ruler to measure ourselves by. It's a, it's a standard for which we can climb and try to achieve. None of us will do that perfectly, but it is a direction to head in our lives. So reading this list of 16 or 17 items, depending on how you break it up, works as a spiritual thermometer. You can take your temperature and see how you're doing. And you will likely discover, as you go through this list, areas of your life that need work. And that's all to the good if you do the work, right? So it's worthwhile taking our time here and examining each of these items in some depth. That's why we're going really slow right now through Romans. But um, we've already covered from verse 9 almost to the end of verse 12. Last time we just barely mentioned the last three words of verse 12. Just three words, but enough to fill many sermons, really, if we wanted to. The words are devoted to prayer. The authentic Christian life is one that is devoted to prayer. In fact, the participle here, the verb, is a, a big word in Greek. Proskartaruntus. That's a big word, huh? Sounds really cool. Just means, it means steadfastly continuing, which is exactly the way the New King James Version translates it. So that's the translation you have. My Bible says um, devoted to prayer. It's an ongoing, earnest life of prayer. There's nothing sporadic or spotty about it. It's a prayerful life. Paul is describing an individual who is a prayer at heart, who is very God-centered in his or her thinking and relating to the world, devoted to prayer. I was thinking about the placement of prayer here on this list of Christian virtues and whether or not that had any particular significance. And I, I think it does because all of these elements of an authentic Christian life from verse 9 down to verse 12 are so dependent on prayer in order to be properly formed in our lives. These virtues could not be maintained in anybody's life, I don't believe, without a vital and continuous prayer life. So, I mean, if you want to do these things and be this way, you're going to have to be a person of prayer. Think about the first item. Let love be without hypocrisy. You know, it's hard enough to love the way Christ loved and to love the way the Bible commands us to love. But for love to be what it's supposed to be, always focused on what is best for the beloved, for the other person, you need to be a prayerful person to be like that. People aren't just inherently like that. 
It's too easy to let love slide into a self-focus which ends up in manipulation and methods of control, getting instead of giving. Very easy for that to happen. Prayer keeps love from degenerating because communion with God continually reminds us of what love is. And a well-ordered prayer life, a well-ordered prayer in, in, in having a well-ordered prayer life, we examine ourselves and we confess our failures in love and we choose to do better before God who is pouring out his love to us all the time. And we can draw from that and give love out. Prayer also keeps us sharp conscience. The second thing on the list there uh, in verse 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You know, in prayer with a holy God, it's very difficult to cling to unholy things or delight in them in the same way because prayer has this cleansing power in it. Prayer renews our love for the brethren. Verse 10 there, because God loves his people and His presence uh, in his presence we renew our love for the church and we appreciate other Christians. Prayer maintains our diligence following that, our fervency, our service. Prayer reminds us to hope because God can do anything. And prayer gives us strength to persevere in tribulation. So prayer is connected to all of these other virtues. And I don't believe any of them can exist without steadfast, continuous prayer. In my own life, prayer is a constant corrective for me. Uh, without it, I know I would be drifting all over the place. In my thinking, my motives, my decisions, even my affections, the things that I care about, they would change and get on the wrong track if I wasn't a prayerful person. Prayer keeps us in God's way, thinking God's thoughts after him. So I want to love what he loves, and I want to hate what he hates, and I need a renewed mind to do that. I need a transformation. I need to have my inner man transformed, and that renewal is largely dependent on prayer. So this is a part of life that can't be ignored, and if it is ignored, it'll have, I think, very sad consequences. A life lived outside the presence of God looks like, well, it looks like a life lived outside the presence of God. That's what it looks like. Prayer brings all the Christian virtues into their proper place. You find prayer similarly placed in Ephesians chapter 6 in Paul's wonderful discussion of the Christian's armor. You know how he, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 6 he uses a Roman soldier as sort of a model and Paul being chained up probably was looking at one when he was writing this letter and he describes the breastplate of righteousness and the, the belt of truth and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. At the end of all of it, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray at all times in the Spirit, he says. Life is to be lived in an atmosphere of prayer. Just like breathing in and breathing out air, we need to be taking in from God and putting out to Him all the time, breathing in a life of prayer. God should always be in on things, whether we're at work or at school or playing or on the road. <coughs> Excuse me. Prayer has to be a natural and in a real sense a continual part of our lives. And if you go a whole day without prayer, you're probably drifting already spiritually somewhere in your life. Really. Let me encourage you, be devoted to prayer as those three short words in Romans tell us. The idea of integrating God into your life throughout the day is one that godly people always recommend. You talk to godly people, 
They're breathing prayer all day. It's just a part of who they are. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, put it well in his 19th century manner. One of his sermons on prayer, he said, Well, now he that knows how to pray will find everything about him, helping him to the sacred habit. Is it a beautiful landscape? Say, blessed be God who has strewn these treasures of form and color throughout the world to cheer the sight and gladden the heart. Are you in doleful darkness? And is it a foggy day? Say, lighten my darkness, O Lord. Are you in the midst of company? You will be reminded to pray, Lord, keep the door of my lips. Are you quite alone? Then you can say, let me not be alone, but be thou with me, Father. <coughs> the putting on of your clothes, the sitting at the breakfast table, the getting into the, into the conveyance. That's like your car. <laughs> In those days it was a buggy probably. The walking the streets, the opening of your ledger, the putting up of your shutters. Everything may suggest such prayer as that which I am trying to describe if you be but in the right frame of mind for offering it, he says. These are good habits of mind to do that. And you will be surprised at how beneficial an atmosphere of prayer can be in your life. Of course, these brief uh, moving through life kind of prayers are not the only kind of prayer. That's just one kind of prayer. The other kinds shouldn't be neglected either. There are corporate prayers, which we offer in church or in group situations. Psalm 135 says, Praise the Lord! Praise the name of the Lord! Praise Him, O servants of the Lord! You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own possession. There are many calls to praise God together in the Bible, but many biblical examples of corporate prayer. First uh, Kings chapter 8, Solomon's incredible prayer in the temple. It's just one of the great prayers in the Bible um, done with a group of people. The apostles in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost, praying together. Corporate prayer is important as it unites us in prayer and petition and um, in unity. By the way, prayer meeting is at Tuesday night at Mel's house. I encourage you all to come. Um, also, there has to be personal prayer that is not just short little um, exclamations of prayer, but, um, but substantive, not brief, but wrestling with God over important matters and pouring out one's heart. Many of the Psalms are literally written versions of those kinds of prayers, intense personal time in prayer. There should be a time every day when you have a time for concentrated prayer, when you can focus wholeheartedly on the Lord. You can see this wonderfully modeled by the prophet Daniel, who, although very busy, obviously running a government, an important man, set aside three times a day for personal devotions and prayer to God to keep his life on track. So don't be afraid to hammer a prayer uh, until it's answered and keep at it, even if it's not answered in your lifetime. I don't know how many people pray for someone for many, many years, and then they die, and then that person comes to the Lord or his life has changed or whatever, I mean, you might not even see the end of your prayers until heaven, you know. Jesus gave us a wonderful illustration to encourage us to be devoted in prayer. And it's in Luke's Gospel. Let's turn there. Luke chapter 18. It's the story of the unrighteous judge. Could you run get me something to drink? In the ancient world, um, Israel included... Judges had enormous power. Justice was quite literally in their keeping. And the only hope for justice was to have a good judge, an impartial, fair, decent man. For example, uh, to get access to a judge in, in that system, the judge himself had to grant it. 
So you didn't go down and file papers and then somebody else would arrange for you to be in some court and arrange for the judge to be there. The judge had to give you permission and grant your presence in his court so you could get your case heard. And if he wasn't in the mood to do that, guess what? You're out of justice. So you needed a good man there. An honest judge worked on a first-come, first-served sort of basis. He ensured that equal treatment was given for everyone, regardless of wealth or social position. The Old Testament law is adamant that that be the case, that judges be fair-minded like that and treat the small and the great equally before the courts of justice. <coughs> but you can guess how access was gained to a corrupt judge, a judge who was not a righteous man, a man not interested in equal justice. Bribes for access would be offered and accepted, and even in times... In terms of just getting a hearing, uh, you know, those little inducements might help, or, or wealth or position might influence your capacity to get before the judge. And Jesus' story is about an unrighteous judge, a wicked man, and this poor widow with no social or financial clout. Watch the descriptions of these two people as Jesus sets it out there. Uh, the first verses. Thank you, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Um, chapter 18, verse 1. He says, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying there was a certain, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Classic situation. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man. She has no resources at all. But her own persistence. Widows and orphans were the most vulnerable people in that society. They needed community to help survive unless they were incredibly independently wealthy, which was very rare. That's why in the law of Moses it was really clear. In Exodus 22, verse 22, it says, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. I mean, he just flat out says that and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So the law was clear, and the later prophets often condemned Israel for failure in this matter of orphans and widows. Well, the judge in Jesus' story couldn't care less. He doesn't care about God, so he's not afraid of that. Doesn't care about people. So her situation seems hopeless, except she is not about to be refused. So every day, Sir, take my case! Judge, sir! Every day, whether this guy's walking out of his house or going into where the court meets or whatever, she's there calling out to him. Your Honor, still haven't heard my case. Uh, don't forget, my case. I, I, I need some help here, sir. Your Honor. Every day, day after day after day. It's been a month, sir. Will you hear my case today, sir? Sir, I'm asking for justice for a poor widow. You know, just on and on and on, day after day. She pushes and persists and plods on and she won't give up. And you know what? She finally gets her way. She finally gets her way. Why? He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about people. But he does care about himself. So verse 4, for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man. He's even saying this to himself. I don't fear God nor respect man. But because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Lest by continually coming she wear me out. So all he cares about is his own personal comfort, which she had quite encroached upon. So he gives in. She's an annoying, embarrassing, obnoxious pain in the neck. So to get rid of her, he gives her justice. She wins by pestering and gets answered even by this wicked, wicked man. Well, what's Jesus' point? 
Well, his point is one of contrast. If you look at verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He invites us to contrast this fellow, this judge, with the Lord God. The judge is a man. God is the Lord Almighty. The judge is a wicked man. God is perfectly righteous, right? The judge is a lazy man. God acts in the best time. God is personally interested in our case, if you will. He is concerned to see done what is right. Other contrast, the woman was a stranger to this man. We are God's children. What have we learned in Romans? Romans chapter 8, right? Verse 16, a few months ago. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8, 16 and 17. This woman had no access to this judge. We have access to God anytime through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. We have ready access, a sympathetic ear in our Savior and in our Father. Notice too, she went to a court of law. We appear before a throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, Also, this woman had no friend. This woman, a woman in Jewish courts really needed a man to stand with her. Another problem for widows, not having that, unless somebody was a friend that would do that for her. But we have someone to stand with us. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, someone that comes alongside with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So with everything against her, she got justice. And Jesus wants you to ask yourself, shall we get less than everything from God? Is God better than this unrighteous, wicked man? So much infinitely so, right? That's the point. That when you compare this woman with our situation before God, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, we should have confidence in prayer because he told this story specifically. Why? Verse 1 of Luke 18, he was telling them a parable to show them at all times that they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Don't lose heart. Give, keep going. Keep going. God is not an unrighteous man that he should ignore you. If things don't seem to be happening, he is arranging events for the perfect timing according to his great mercy and wisdom. And you just have to trust him. That's where faith comes in. Jesus wants you to pray and not lose heart. Not that we will get everything we think we should have today, and that God, but God will indeed deal with us according to what is best. Prayer will not 
reverse the curse and won't make the earth a perfect paradise until the Lord's time has come to come back and do all that stuff. Life is going to have its ills and its sorrows. Things will break down. Even our bodies will break down eventually. People we know will sin, sometimes grievously, much to our hurt. Don't forget what we're here for. That's really the main thing here. We're not here for a pleasant ride. That's not what life is all about. We are here to be light in the darkness. That's our purpose for existence to be light in the darkness. And to say, take all the darkness away is, is, is something that is not in the picture because that's not what it's about. It's not what we're here for. God is letting darkness do its thing for a while, have its way. It needs to, be, it needs to feed and grow. And hopefully, the darkness will realize its own futility as everything always falls apart. The futility of living without God, of loving without God, of legislating without God. Planet Earth is this object lesson on sin. And we've been put here to be a light to the darkness, to bear witness of what the truth is. But even as that goes on, all this stuff, God loves the lost. He loves the rebellious. He loves the wicked person. He cares about them. That's why he sent Jesus into the world, to bear their sin in his own body. That's why he sends us. God saves us, he elects us, he picks us out, he changes us, he brings us on his side, and he sends us to bear witness to what Jesus did. That's what we're here for. So, God hears us when we pray, but that doesn't mean we will not have to ever suffer, or not have difficulties, or not have things that are difficult to explain, or all of that. Jesus prayed in the garden for what? Take this cross away from me, right? And the Father heard him, but he still had to go to the cross because the, the, what's going on is the redemption of the world through Christ. That's what God is doing. So Jesus wasn't going to be allowed to change that plan even though he said, if there's another way to do this, let's do that. And God said, no. And he says, okay, then I'll do it. He prayed, he was heard, the answer was no. We have to do this way. So we who are the witnesses to him and who he is and his glory and his sacrifice are called upon to model faith and trust in the world. That's how part of the way we are lights in the world. We may have to suffer too. We may have to endure a wrong done to us to bear witness to God's transforming power in our life that we can love despite this or that happening to us. We may have to suffer illness or loss to bear witness to our hope of eternal life to Christ in a dark world where there is no hope. Jesus said, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Right? Those are great words. Courage now for a time, and then when our task is done, victory, victory. I have overcome the world. So pray with confidence and live courageously because in him we overcome the world. Well, I've prayed and I haven't heard and it's been so long. Take heart. Have courage. God is not inactive. He is making unseen preparations all the time. Think of Joseph, unjustly imprisoned for many, many months. He remained faithful and eventually was delivered to a place of great importance. Daniel, the prophet, saw as a teenager, he witnessed the complete destruction of his country, the slaughter of untold thousands of people. He himself, as a teenager, was 
carried off into a captive land to be trained by his enemies to serve them and he remained faithful in prayer and God used him and exalted him. The apostles beatings and dungeons and chains and martyrdom and always rejoicing. How? Because God used them for great things and they wanted to be used of him not for their own comfort but for his purposes. And that's what they did. We are not told that Paul prayed to get out of prison. When Paul was in prison, he prayed for opportunities to share Christ. Paul was afflicted physically and he did pray to be healed. He says, three times I made it, I made it a major matter of prayer. I brought it to God. I, need to be, I, I, I would desire to be relieved of this affliction. And what does God say to him? No. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he reasoned it through himself. He says, you know, being an apostle is kind of a heady thing. So to be constantly afflicted with physical suffering is necessary for me. It's part of the affliction. And God's grace is sufficient. And I will endure life with this because I need to be kept humble and in my own place too. That's a godly attitude. Faithful in everything. Living by faith. Devoted to prayer. Jesus in Luke 18.8 leaves us with this question about faith, about trusting God. What's the connection between this teaching on prayer and that last line in verse 8 where he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What does that have to do with prayer? Everything. That's the whole point. You are here to believe and to model faith and trust in God to the world. That's what prayer is all about, an expression of that faith and trust in God to not be overthrown by this world's trials. That's what you're here for. To not be overthrown by the temptations of the world or the world's thinking. God is looking for faith. And that will be seen in your prayer life as you are devoted to prayer. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to have a perspective that is entirely yours. We want your kingdom and your purposes in this world to be foremost and forefront in our hearts and minds. Father, you're such a good and gracious God, but don't let us get all caught up in our thing when we're here for your thing. It's all about your will and your purpose. Make us instruments of your grace and mercy to our world. Help us to be faithful in prayer, to not give up. We see the results of it so often in such dramatic and wonderful ways, and then we still sometimes drift. We pray for the grace to not do that. Help us to be diligent in our prayer life and to be always drawing from you so we can give to others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing that last hymn, number 435.